morning scripture is in the book of Romans, chapter 1, verses 8 through 17. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow, by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. All right, Romans 1, you ready? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have today to behold you in this text. And we ask that you would give us understanding and wisdom that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to us today. Help me to make sense of this very, very important passage. And we just want you, Holy Spirit, to apply the word of Romans 1 to our lives today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Romans has changed the world. And the reason that it has changed the world is that the content of the book of Romans has the ability to change one person's heart at a time. Martin Luther was that kind of person. The book of Romans, the content of it changed his life and for that matter changed the trajectory of Christianity through the launching of the Protestant Reformation. For that matter, it wasn't just the book of Romans, not just the content of Romans, but it actually was Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. That was the epicenter of an amazing work of God in Martin Luther's life. You see, for years as a monk, he had given his life to service of the church, but the more Martin Luther worked and the more he served, the more he hated God. It's kind of a bad thing if you're a monk and you're hating God. And and the reason was is that the teaching of the church was that in order for one to become righteous, you needed to do your work, you needed to obey the law and serve the church. And then as you did your work of service, God would, would add his righteousness to your work. So as you worked, then God did his work. And so the more you worked, then the more God would do his work. And so the effect of this was that Martin Luther, the more he understood about his own depravity, the more he understood about God's righteousness, the further and further God's righteousness became from him and he ended up hating God and hating the concept of righteousness and who could blame him because the righteousness of God seen through this sort of work lens creates impossible requirements creates continual fear 
perpetual failing, no freedom, no joy, trying to actively achieve God's righteousness by your own efforts is impossible and it's debilitating. And that's where Luther found himself. Until one day, in the tower of the black cloister in Wittenberg, everything changed. Luther described the moment as lightning striking his conscience or a thunderbolt in his heart. When he understood Romans 1.17 and the truth of this statement, the righteous shall live by faith. When Luther understood what that meant, everything changed. The righteous shall live by faith. Last week we began our journey through the book of Romans. I gave you a bit of an introduction and shared with you that the theme, the overarching theme of the book of Romans is righteousness through the gospel. For those of you who weren't here last week, let me just give you a quick, very, very brief summary. Paul writes this letter to a church that he's never met, a group of people who were trying to get along. There were Jews and Gentiles within the context of the church. And Paul has on his mind a group of people in Spain that he wants to leverage the people of Rome to try and reach. So we have a church that's struggling to get along. They don't really know the Apostle Paul in terms of a personal relationship, and he wants to motivate them to be on mission. So what does Paul do to help these people get along and have a heart for people who've never heard the gospel? Answer, he gives them the most systematic and in-depth treatment of the gospel in the entire New Testament. He shares with them the beautiful message of what righteousness is when it comes to you through the good news of the gospel. So that was last week. Today what I want to do is show you mainly what is in Romans 1.17 and then connect it to the idea of both power and passion. What I want to do is show you that the proposition or the truth of Romans 1.17, the epicenter of what happened to Martin Luther, what I hope and trust that you believe in or what I hope some of you will believe in today, the Truth, the propositional of Romans, propositional truth of 117 in Romans leads to power and it leads to passion. Now what is that propositional truth? That propositional truth is that the righteous live by faith. That word righteous, that word faith are all important. When I say that the truth is propositional, it means that there are statements, there are maxims, there are principles and concepts, there are spiritual ideas that are being communicated throughout the book of Romans. You, you may have heard before that ideas have consequences, and that's true. When it comes to spiritual ideas, when it comes to the gospel, the gospel has consequences like forgiveness and reconciliation, and joy, and worship, and gratitude, and witness. And so all of these things center on what we find in Romans 1 and verse 17. And what I want to do is show you what that text says, and then work our way backwards up to text 17, then 16, and then look at verses 8 through 15, all under the banner of trying to determine what are the implications of this proposition. So look at Romans 1, 17. The text says this, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul says essentially the same thing with two different phrases. In the first phrase, he says, For in it, 
So what is the it? Well, the it, you got to go up to verse 16 to find it. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the it. So you could replace the word it with the word gospel. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And what Paul does here is he links this idea of the gospel and righteousness with faith. He says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. Now, before we get to the faith part, we've got to understand, what is this righteousness of God phrase? At first, when you read it, you might think, okay, so the righteousness of God, that means his character is revealed, because after all, God is righteous, and it says that the righteousness of God. So this is the character of God that's being revealed. And while it's true that God is righteous, and in other parts of the Bible we see the unfolding righteousness of God being revealed, that's not what Paul mainly has in mind here. Rather, what he's talking about is the way in which the righteousness of God is revealed as it is coming to human beings who are sinful. So in other words, the righteousness of God is not just his character being revealed, which that is true about his character, that he is indeed righteous, but it means that how does the righteousness of God come to human beings? How does the righteousness of God come to us? What Paul is saying is that in the gospel we see the way that God's righteousness comes to sinners. Now, remember, with Luther, righteousness came to sinners by them working and them being active in their righteousness, and then God would sort of match their righteousness with his. So as they became righteous, God would then infuse their own righteousness with his righteousness. So they would work, and then God would then add righteousness to it. So the question is, is that really how righteousness comes? This the statement is not about God's character as much as it is how it is that God's righteousness comes to us through the gospel. The answer to that question about how does God's righteousness come to us is found in the latter part of, of that first phrase in verse 17 where it says, from faith and for faith. This means that righteousness, the righteousness of God, how does it come to human beings? It comes to us by faith or by belief, which is why the Protestant Reformation had this very important clarion message that grace is by faith alone. From faith for faith. That means that Righteousness comes from faith, it's the beginning, and for faith, meaning that it continues by faith. So don't make the mistake of thinking that you have faith believing in Jesus, and then for the rest of your life when you come to Jesus, you don't need to have any more faith. Christianity, at its essence, is about faith. You come to faith in Christ, you live every day by faith in Christ, every single day of your life you're living by faith in the Son of God who, as Paul said in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, who loved you and gave himself for you. So Christianity is entered into by faith, it's appropriated by faith, righteousness of God comes to you by faith, and every single day you live out your life by faith. What's remarkable is that every other religion in the world is based upon a system of works. This is what makes Christianity fundamentally unique. And for that matter, not only are all the religions based upon a works-based system, but the orientation of the human heart gravitates towards works. Let me illustrate this. If you were to find just a common person in, in our community and ask them, so do you think you're going to go to heaven? And if they were to say yes, and you were to ask them, well, why do you think you would go to heaven? Most people are going to give you some form of answer that sounds like this. Well, I've done a lot of good things in my life. 
Or, I've not done as many bad things as other people. So the orientation of the human heart is towards a works-based system. And as well, all the religions of the world are based on a works-based system. And so the good news of the gospel is that God's righteousness is not earned. It's not deserved. It's not something that you can manufacture or create. It's not something that you can do and then God matches. Instead, the good news of the gospel is that righteousness comes to human beings. The righteousness of God comes to human beings by faith as a gift, not as something that you earn or something that you do. As you'll see in the weeks to come, we are the problem. (laughs) The older I get, the more I realize... I am my biggest problem. I am the biggest sinner that I know. I know what I've done. I can only imagine or hope to imagine what you've done. I know who I am. So Christianity is about another person's righteousness being given to us, and that other person was Jesus. So in verse 17, Paul is essentially saying that in the gospel, God has revealed how we can be made right with him. And the answer is that it is through faith. It means that God counts us righteous in Christ. It means that God forgives us in Jesus. So being right with God, therefore, is not something that I can create. Instead, I must believe that God can do it for me through Jesus. So the entrance into Christianity is through faith. Righteousness comes to us as a gift. That in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith and for faith. That's one way that he says it. There's a second way that Paul says it. Look at the first part of, or the second part of verse 17. He then says, as it is written, which always means in reference to an Old Testament passage. Now, why would Paul talk about the Old Testament? Well, a number of reasons. First, because there's Jews that he's trying to reach. But secondly, he wants to avoid the charge that this is somehow new. That this is a new gospel, so to speak. And so what Paul does is he cites Habakkuk 2.4, which says, The righteous shall live by faith. He uses this Old Testament passage to support the fact that this is not a new concept. This has always been the way that God works. In fact, he'll use the same argument in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 11. Look at this text. It says, Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So Paul is going to continually lay out this argument. He does so in Galatians. He does so in Ephesians. He does so here. That there are two paths of life. There's the path of works, the path of trying to manufacture your own righteousness, or the path of grace, of faith alone. The only way that you can be righteous is to have God give you the righteousness of someone else, namely Jesus. He'll argue throughout the book of Romans, that this is the way that God has always worked. Now the reason that this is so important is because this is the central message of the New Testament. Romans 1.17 contains the central truth of the gospel. That God in Christ grants to sinful human beings a righteousness that we could never earn, nor did we ever deserve it. That God grants to us the righteousness of Christ as a gift which we must receive by faith as we believe His Word. 
The proposition is simple. The righteous live by faith. But the implications of that proposition are sweeping and eternal. Back to Luther. When he understood the implications of this, it changed everything. In that tower in Wittenberg, Luther came to understand that true righteousness is not an active righteousness based upon God's demands through our efforts, but rather a passive righteousness that he gives to us based upon the work of Jesus. And when that passive righteousness comes, then we can be truly righteous, not only in our position, but also in our practice. But if you have to work for everything, then everything you're doing is trying to earn God's favor, then the work that you do is never really even truly good in the first place. Luther understood for the first time that salvation was not something that he could earn. It was a gift. And the thunderbolt that struck his soul was the fact that he was not saved by his own doing, but by someone else's righteousness being given to him. That salvation was by grace through faith alone. Here's what he said about that moment. I extolled my sweetest word with a love as great as the hatred with which I had before hated the word, the righteousness of God. Thus, that place in Paul was for me truly the gate to paradise. And Luther's life and the course of Christianity was forever changed. The proposition is, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the proposition. And I hope... You believe that proposition. I hope it becomes and is your life. And I hope to show you through Romans how that proposition can change every aspect of your life. I'm telling you, I've experienced this even this week. In thinking about this, how does the gospel transform my mind and heart? I have found myself greatly helped by being reminded of the beauty and the power of this gospel. So that's the proposition. Here's, secondly, in verse 16 now, the power. Paul says, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, but also to the Greeks. Paul begins by saying that he's not ashamed of this gospel. This is not a small statement. And after all, if anybody had right to be ashamed or kind of back off a little bit, it would have been the Apostle Paul. After all, he was beaten, he was imprisoned, he was ridiculed, he was threatened. In in fact, he's on his way when he's writing, he's in the city of Corinth or somewhere nearby, on his way to Jerusalem when he writes this letter to the Roman believers. And people around him are really nervous as what's going to happen when Paul goes to Jerusalem. He's going to the center of Jewish thought And Paul, as a converted Jewish person, is not going to be on friendly territory. And they're concerned, and it's been prophesied by a man named Agabus, that he's going to be arrested in Jerusalem. So as he's heading to Jerusalem, writing this letter, for him to say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, is a very important statement. Or for that matter, if Paul does get to Rome, set the Jewish religious thing aside, he's going to go to the center of imperial power and declare that Jesus is Lord when Rome says Caesar is Lord. And who knows what's going to happen there. Here's a man who has every right to maybe back off a little bit. But he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Is that relevant, this idea of being ashamed of the gospel? Is that relevant for us? I I think it is. 
You need, to, you need to know that believing the message of the Bible and its claim of absolute authority is becoming increasingly considered by our culture as foolish or arrogant. To believe that salvation only comes by faith in Jesus is something that our, our world is beginning to view more and more through the lens of intolerance. To suggest that biblical principles relate still to how we live, to things as fundamental to culture as morality or the family, like a marriage only being between a man and a woman. That's now being portrayed as bigotry and hate. So I just want to encourage you that, that this message in Romans 1.16 is incredibly relevant. This is not a new problem. This is the problem the church has always had. That we have to figure out winsome and helpful and clear ways to articulate the message of the biblical story, to communicate the message of the glorious gospel, and to do so in a way that is both authentic and real and powerful. So how do you help motivate people to not be ashamed without having them be angry? You know what you do? You help them understand the gospel. That will help people to be clear, but also to be compassionate. I rejoiced. I saw a quote, and I saw part of the interview of Rick Warren was interviewed by Pierce Morgan recently, and Rick Warren did a masterful job making the case of a number of um, biblical truths. And in regards to marriage, he stated clearly a biblical perspective. And when Pierce didn't like his answer, he said, you know what, Pierce, I, the reality is I, I care more about what God thinks of me than what you think of me. And he said it so lovingly and winsomely. I was like, wow, that's awesome, man. That was beautiful. So humble, so forthright, and yet so clear. When you understand the gospel, you're not full of pride. You're not full of defensiveness. You're full of the beauty of grace. Verse 16 continues with some things that are very remarkable. Paul says, For it is the power of God for salvation. It's power. We, we saw back in verse 2 that Paul said that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power by the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection of the dead. And so there's a connection, and you'll see this throughout the book of Romans, between salvation, the gospel, and spirit, resurrection, and power. The, the, the gospel has power to create salvation in the hearts of people and to radically change them. And all throughout the book of Romans, there are evidences of the gospel's ability to change people. So I started just kind of making my way through the book of Romans and started thinking, where, where are passages that talk about change because of the gospel? Here's seven passages. You ready? Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What does the gospel bring? The gospel brings power and change by bringing us into peace with God. Second, Romans 6.4 We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. I hope to be able to show you from Romans chapter 6 sometime in, in 2015 that, that this beautiful gospel can result in you truly living a different life every single day. 
Romans 8, 1. Therefore, now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The enemy can remind you of your past. You need to take him back and remind him of the cross. What shall we say to these things? Romans 8, 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's the power to change. When you see the future, you see scary things, you're reminded, God is for me, he's not against me. Romans 8, 37. Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How does the gospel change us? It changes us even how we treat other people. Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Why should you not think highly of yourself? Because everything you have, you've received. What are you going to boast about? You got nothing without Jesus. You got nothing without the gospel. In fact, as I said earlier, I'm the problem. Romans 13, verse 13, very practically, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do you got to put on Jesus? You know why? Because it's his righteousness. You got to practically appropriate the righteousness of Jesus so that you won't be involved in immorality. You won't give yourself over to too much alcohol. You won't be quarreling and bickering and sniping at people. You won't be filled with jealousy. You got to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. You got to come back to the gospel and be reminded what does the gospel do and then how do we live this out? That's why it's so tragic to me. It's so tragic that if you think of the gospel as it just relates to where you spend eternity, if that's, if that's just where the gospel is, that's not the full understanding of what the gospel can and should be. The idea is that the righteous live by faith, and you live by faith coming into a relationship with Christ, and then you live by faith every single day, not just in the fact, Jesus died for my sins. That's true, but then you live that out. If Jesus died for my sins, then guess what? God is no longer my judge, he's my father. Sin is no longer seen as the freedom to do whatever I want, but sin is now the bondage that nearly ruined my life. When you see life through the lens of the gospel, you see that Jesus is not just a historical figure, but now he is your personal savior. That your identity is no longer based upon performance, the things that you do. It's now based upon things like promise and faith. It means that hope is not based upon what happens to you in the future because what happens to you in the future could be bad from a world standpoint hope doesn't come from the future getting better hope comes from knowing the fact that the same god who controls your salvation is the same god who controls your everyday world and experience if you can trust him to save you certainly you can trust him for the next five years of your life or 10 years or 30 years or 50 it changes how you see other people. Other people are, are, are a part of your life, not just in order to make you happy or to give you what you want, but they are there as opportunities for selfless love. Why selfless love? Because God has loved you in a way you didn't deserve, so you see everyone through this new lens. Suffering, hard things that happen, you see it as no longer pointless or meaningless, but it's divinely designed in order to make you like Jesus. Obedience. Obedience now is not what you have to do, it's what you want to do. Whereas the law of God used to make you mad, now it makes you glad. 
And you rejoice in the beauty of what God invites you to do in becoming more and more like His Son. And joy is not merely an emotion, but it's rather it's the overflow of the inexpressible contentment knowing that God has declared you righteous. I could go on and on and on in this regard, and you should go on and on. In fact, I would suggest if you're meeting in small groups this week to take this gospel and take this as a lens and look at your parenting and your singleness and your work and your money. Look at your sense of identity through the lens of the gospel and answer this question. How does the gospel affect all of these things in my life. And you will be surprised how robust and helpful it is to see life through that lens and how often, for some reason, we put those lenses away. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He says to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. The vision that Paul gives is that this is a church that's united under the common call of righteousness through faith. You see, what I'm arguing for here is this, that the gospel makes you see yourself and God and sin and other people and unreached peoples through a radically different lens. And what that means is that if you're here today and you've never put your faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, I just have to have you understand what it is that you're missing. You don't understand in this moment the, the different of, difference of the lens, difference of the heart that it makes when a person says, I can't do this, I need Jesus, I need your righteousness, I put my faith in you, I'm giving up on me and I'm letting you become my everything. So in one respect, if you're here without Christ today, there is something incredibly attractive and frightening about the gospel. And I get it. It's attractive because you know this could change everything. And it's frightening because you know this is going to change everything. And that is the good news of the gospel. It is frighteningly beautiful. And then when you get in, you realize, you know what? This was so incredible and amazing. This beautiful story of the gospel, you can't help expressing to other people the change that has happened in your soul because of the fact that you gave up and Jesus took over. So, that is the proposition. Then the power. Finally here, there's some things related to passion. We get Paul's sense of the emotional lens through which he looks at life. See, the gospel will affect not only what you think about, but also what you feel. So we get some cues about what Paul is passionate about in verses 8 to 15. There's six of six things here. The first, Paul has a passion for gratitude. He says, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. Notice that he isn't just grateful for them, but he thanks God for them because this is what the gospel does. Now you, you see everything through a lens that this is all from God. Once your heart has been overwhelmed with the beauty of God's grace, you see everything through this lens of how gracious God has been. So he is filled with gratitude. He's also filled with a sense of mission, a passion for mission. He says, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So Paul is thrilled that the reputation of Rome and what is happening in those series of house churches is spreading all over the place. And remember, Paul had nothing to do with that. 
So get this, he's grateful for what is happening in a group of house churches which he has nothing to do with. This is when you really understand the gospel, you could care less who gets the credit or who's responsible for it because at the end of the day, you just want the gospel to spread. So like this week, so I'm seeing in the, in the newspaper about Northview um, Christian Church where Steve Poe, a friend of mine, pastors, that they gave away like $83,000 like we did, like the $100, $50 increments showing extravagant grace. And I, I read that and I was like, yes! And I ran into Aaron Brockett, the pastor over at uh, Trader's Point, and was asking him, hey, you guys took an offering at Christmas, how'd that go? And he said, Mark, our people gave almost four times what we had asked them to. And I was like, yes! You know, when, when you love the gospel, the reality is, I don't care if it's my church or their church or someone else's church, I don't care if it's your small groups or someone else's small group, the reality is the gospel is more important than just our little concepts, our little programs, or our little church. The reality is you love to see God at work regardless of where he is working. If you misplace the gospel and it becomes about you, then it'll be like, well, our small group isn't doing as good as theirs are. Or our little program, Mark never talks about our program, right? This, uh, we, you have all these little things that happen, and I'm telling you, I've been around church long enough to know things get really squirrely when the gospel is in front and center. You get squirrely when the gospel... Right? So, so write this down. Don't get squirrely, get the gospel, right? Put that down somewhere. That's... Put that on my tombstone or something. He wasn't squirrely. He just got the gospel. That's not in the notes, just so you know. Verse 9, let's move on. God is my witness who I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers. So prayer was another piece. He's filled with gratitude. He was filled with mission. He was also filled with prayer because he knew that to pray is to tap into the very power of a God who saved him in the first place. And some of you, you need to come tonight to pray, believing, maybe for the first time in a long time, that God really can do something. If you're powerful enough to impute the righteousness of Christ to me, then certainly you're powerful enough to reach our son because you know where he is and he needs to come back home. Or you can change this marriage. God, you can address this issue in our home. You can help the heart of our kids. You need to believe in the power of God because you believe in the power of the gospel. Thank you, all nine of you. I appreciate that. That's good. Spiritual growth is the next one, verse 11. For I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to you. So Paul didn't want them just to remain in this sort of infantile spiritual place. It wasn't just enough for them to know the facts that Jesus died for their sins. That was the gospel. He wanted them to grow up into the gospel. Not leaving the gospel behind, but taking it with them and then fully unpacking it. So he wanted to impart to them some spiritual gift to strengthen them. Verse 12, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. The idea is, look, I want to be there so I can help you grow and and walk and we can grow together. So last Sunday, we had like 4,500 people here. And and when I hear those numbers, I, I get a little bit overwhelmed. It may have felt like it was a little tight. And it was, because we had a lot of people, and I went a little long, and that's okay, right? So, um, so we, the reality is that our definition of success, though, cannot come from a number. It has to come from the way in which we grow together spiritually. So some of you have come here, and we're, I'm so grateful that you're here. You're kind of in that church recovery program, and you're just hanging out, and just, just you're coming, and you're leaving, you're not really connecting. And you know what? I'm okay with that for a little while. I am. But the reality is, long term, it's not good for your soul. 
long term. We don't just want you to come and sit and leave and not get connected long term. What we want is for you to find a group of people and figure out how to live out the gospel. And how do you do parenting and marriage and singleness and dating? And how do you do career and cancer? How do you do death in the context of the gospel? And you need people to help you to do that. You need people to grow together, to be mutually encouraged. So Paul was passionate about that. He's also passionate about trust. Verse 13, I want you to know, brothers, I have often intended to come to you. Paul wanted to come to them, but he had been prevented. So what do you do with life that's frustrating at times? Or you got these plans, but nothing ever works out. Or you have these ideas, I want to do this, but it's always some sort of providential hindering. What, what do you do with that? You, you put that under the banner of the gospel. God, that if I can trust you for the care of my soul, certainly I can trust you for my career. I can trust you for this adoption. I can trust you with our infertility. I mean, you think, God, you've dealt with my sin. You can't deal with this. I can trust you. I've trusted you so fundamentally with who I am that I can trust you in all of these other areas. You appropriate the same aspects of the gospel. You appropriate them to other areas of your life. You trust. And then finally, Paul felt an obligation, verses 14 and 15, to preach to whomever he could find. I'm under obligation to Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. So Paul wanted to express the gospel to them. My guess is that every one of us have certain kinds of people that we're uncomfortable, a little nervous sharing the gospel with. Maybe it's like smart people, co-workers, Maybe family, because they keep coming back year after year. A neighbor, because they, they see how you talk to your kids. The close proximity, someone who lives in your fraternity. And can I just encourage you to think about this, that, that when Paul says, I'm under obligation to Greeks and barbarians, the wise and the foolish, there's a sense in which we're under obligation to people around us. And as we walk through Romans, could you just maybe pray this risky prayer, God, as I get it in terms of the gospel? Would you give me a bigger heart for? And you fill in the blank. Who, who is it in your world that you're just intimidated? Like, man, I, I don't know if I can share the gospel with that kind of person. I want you to pray a risky prayer and say, God, as, I'm, as I am just filled with love for the beauty of what you're doing to the gospel, would you give me an ability to not be ashamed and to speak boldly? God, open a door, open my mouth, and then please open their heart. So finally... What does it mean to preach the gospel to yourself? What does it mean to live out that truth? How do we preach the gospel to ourselves? Let me just give you some suggestions. In the first place, it means that you have to know and believe and have received the gospel. You you can't preach the gospel to yourself unless you've tasted and seen that indeed the Lord is good. And it may mean that today you need to cross the line from unbelief to belief, from resistance to acceptance to realize you know what i'm a sinner and i have tried to fix my life but it's not working and i come to realization that the problem in my life is me and i need jesus to change me so deeply in my core that everything about me changes from the inside out and i know that that is scary and yet it's also liberating And maybe that would be where you would move today.
So first you have to know the gospel. Here's the second thing I would suggest, that you begin praying over the gospel. Pray, rehearse, thank God for the ways in which he has redeemed you. List the sins that he's delivered you from. Pray the deliverance that you have received. Third, some of you need to target a verse or two in the Bible that is a signature verse when it comes to the gospel. Maybe Romans 1, 16 to 17, and you need to memorize it and rehearse it and meditate on it. Maybe you need to write out just a short statement about the gospel and begin uh, memorizing it. Or take that book that I mentioned last week, The Gospel Primer. We actually have a, a bunch of those books that we've purchased now that are over in our resource center. And take that book and start reading through it in your time with the Lord just to rehearse what is the gospel and begin appropriating it afresh and anew in your life. And then fourth, and this is where it gets very powerful, you begin to apply the gospel to various areas of your life. You begin asking yourself questions like this. Mark, how does the gospel help me to ask for forgiveness more quickly? How does the gospel help me to be generous? How does the gospel help me to be less critical of others? Or questions like, how does the gospel help me to see my desires for sinful things differently? When you understand the gospel, listen to me, and you rehearse the gospel, you will see desires differently. Or how does the gospel empower me to say no to temptation? I mean, Paul's argument in Romans chapter 6 is, don't continue to sin because you died to it. His answer is, when Christ died, you died. When he rose, he rose. Therefore, don't let sin reign. There's a connection between the gospel and saying no to temptation. Something comes across your path, you're a follower of Jesus, it is not something that you have to do. It's something that Jesus died, so you no longer have to give in. How does the gospel help me lighten up about my shortcomings? Your personality quirks. Your squirreliness. There we go. Got that back in again. My mistakes. How does the gospel empower us to love hard people or to do hard things? See, this is just a small list of the ways that righteousness by faith can change everything. And it was this proposition that the righteous shall live by faith that radically changed Luther's world, changed the course of Christianity, and could be the very thing that changes your life today. That the righteous live by faith. When you get that in your bones, when you get that in your soul, it's a new lens through which you see the world. Jerry Bridges in his book, The Disciplines of Grace, says this, To preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. It means you appropriate again by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God, that he is your propitiation and that God's holy wrath is no longer directed toward you. It means that you dwell upon the promise that God has removed your transgressions from you as far as the east is from the west, that he has blotted out your transgressions and remembers your sin no more. It means that you realize that all these wonderful promises of forgiveness are based upon the atoning death of Jesus Christ. You know what it means? It means as practically as walking every day in the context with people you love. So on Thursday of this week... I spoke too directly to my wife about something. And I thought I had every right in the world to be clear and direct. 
And she lovingly said to me, this isn't helpful right now. And I thought, see, this is why we need clarity because you don't understand. And I walked upstairs fully justified in my mind and heart. This is exactly what needs to be done. And I start remembering the gospel. Is this how God has dealt with you, Mark? Is this how God's appropriated grace to you? How did God lead in his relationship with you? And I found my heart uniquely smitten. I'm back downstairs. I said, honey, there's no way that I should talk to you like that. And I'm sorry. So this is the gospel. It works in your home. It works in my home. It's a lens through which we see life. It helps us to know not only how to take the gospel and walk in newness of life theoretically, but practically in marriage, in parenting, in defeating temptation, what it means for us to get along together. It means that this gospel has changed everything about us. Or at least it should. Because this proposition, the righteous shall live by faith, it has the power to change you from the inside out. See, the reality is, righteous by faith, that is your story. That's who you are. Remember the hymn, Blessed Assurance, the chorus? This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Let's sing that together. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. And this is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. Lord Jesus, thank you for this story of the gospel, that righteousness comes by faith, that the righteous live by faith. And would you help us to apply this gospel into every arena of our lives? We are an imperfect people whose only hope is the righteousness of Christ, not only definitively, but also every single day. So would you help us to fight sin, see ourselves clearly, love each other deeply, and to pursue you passionately because of what you have done through imputing the righteousness of Jesus to us. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's some of you who need to have somebody pray over you today, and there'll be some folks up here at the front who'd love to pray over you. Some folks have questions. There'll be some folks up here who'd love to engage you in dialogue and answer any questions that you have, all right? I love you, College Park. God bless you. Thanks for coming.